Welcome to Mission Control, Peralta Design's podcast on all things branding and digital marketing. Since 2008, Peralta Design has launched hundreds of brands with award-winning identities and websites. Join our hosts Ramon and Jorge as they use decades of combined experience to tackle topics with past clients, industry partners, and the rest of the PD crew. At Peralta Design, we launch brands. But for now, let's launch right into this episode of Mission Control. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mission Control, Peralta Designs podcast on everything branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, current events, uh, social issues. Um, I'm your host, Ramon Peralta. I'm the creative director at Peralta Design, where we launch brands. And we're joined today uh, by our co-host, Jorge Pezo Candelario. Welcome back to the show, Jorge. Always a pleasure to be here, Chief. Uh, always a pleasure to be to take part in this. Excited for our guest today. Excited yes. for a great episode. Yes, we we've, we've got a a very very special guest, a, a fellow Alpha brother, um, a man that's just uh, on a mission, and uh, you know he's he's a uh, he's a renowned speaker, uh, author, um, just a one of, one of probably uh, the the in my opinion one of the most intelligent. Uh, you know, brothers or men in my circle, and I'm so grateful to have him on the show today. Please join me in welcoming Sean Rochester. Welcome to the show, Sean. Ramon, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, Pratt yes. House. Yes, right? yes. We we got to get we got to start pledging Jorge. I mean, I haze him every day, but <laughs> but, but we we, we got to make it official. But um, but yes, I, I, I'm really pleased to have you on the show, Sean. Uh, you're an author, uh, but specifically, uh, you know, on the issue of finances and um, this really profound topic uh, that, that deals with an uncomfortable subject for many. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea of our history and our, as we're dealing with the DNC and the RNC and, and how they've been handling that topic of right now, it's a hot button, but it's something that, that I feel we're at a turning point, and I feel so strongly that your book is ever, ever so relevant. Um, tell us a bit about yourself, your career. Uh, what inspired you to write about the black tax? Yeah, so um, I'll try to make a, a long story short, you know. Um. <laughs> we do have 30 minutes, so I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm originally from, from Barbados. I came up here when I was you know, very young uh, with my mom, um, you know, studied engineering uh, in undergrad, um, worked in manufacturing for a while, went back, got my MBA with a focus in finance, accounting, entrepreneurship, uh, spent a long time working on mergers and acquisitions and strategy um, at a number of kind of top tier Mm-hmm. Uh, companies have done deals all over the world, probably half a billion uh, in, in transactions um, and been engaged in all kinds of, you know, entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, you know, so, so to speak, been very, very engaged in, in the black community for uh, many, many years. Um, you know, my wife and I were part of a nonprofit that during our tenure raised over $2 million for, for black high school students going into to university. So, you know, trying to make a, a difference on a constant basis. Um, you know, at some point, uh, the, the travel, because I, I traveled all, all over the world, probably about 80% of the time, uh, which was a little bit challenging, did that for many, many years. Um, and with a young family, you got to be present, right? So the idea was, you know, how do I make a transition to do some things where I can be present, um, I can do well and I can do good, you know, at the same time. So that shifted me to thinking about how to address some issues associated with the wealth gap. One was what I call personal financial management. How do we manage the limited resources that we have to the highest and best use to eliminate debt and maximize assets of retirement? Um, and then how do we uh, allocate our resources to create jobs, business, and provide capital within the black community? Because uh, that's very, very stimulative to having positive, you know, powerful, profound, you know, communities. So that led me down that path um, and eventually led me to talks and workshops that I did, you know, along the lines of those two topics and then the creation of two books. Uh, One is The Black Tax, which you guys are very aware of, right? Because the dope cover that everybody loves was designed at Peralta Design, 
right? Um, and in my, in my second book, which is CPR for the Soul, which was also designed by Peralta Design, by the way, yeah. um, that focused on personal financial management. So well, long story, tried to be very condensed. Yeah, no, I, and, and Jorge, you can identify with having the young family uh, and, and, and being present. Uh, and, oh, big time. Yeah, all that time, especially now, if it, you know, your time is always precious, but especially now, um, it's even more precious. You know, these, these are moments that you only get to experience this, this one time and so key to, to be there. Yeah. And, you know, this is, there are no coincidences. The universe is doing its thing because you are now the third guest. Uh, it's like a trifecta on the, on the issue of race. You know, I had, mm-hmm. I had Brother Ross on the show, um, and he's, he's written books on campus racism, and, and, mm-hmm. and he's, a, he's a serial entrepreneur. I mean, he was doing catering when he was in college, you know, so he, he was hustling and still is. He's launching 365 Ally, which is a network for black businesses and so forth. I had Dr. Akbar on here. Uh, mm-hmm. Her, her episode is going to drop uh, this coming Monday. And, and she's, yeah. you know, Beyond Ally is her latest book. And uh, yeah. she's also a client. We rebranded uh, uh, her, her nonprofit. And, uh, and she's just doing big things. And, and she wrote uh, Urban Trauma. Yeah. Uh, and so now you're here. And it's like this is our contribution if you will to get your voices out there uh but for those out there those listeners that that can appreciate the entrepreneurship but may not may not be familiar with the black tax you've actually done something very profound you've actually put in put a dollar amount on those 400 years of of, you know that that uh that that white america had a head start on if you will Uh, but we've never really quantified the value in that um what inspired you to do that? Did you, because this required a lot of research, like did something happen to you where you said, I've got to come up with a figure? Because we've all known about it, but mm-hmm. everybody points out like, well, the black dads are absent, you know, um, they're, they're in jail, uh, so you've got the cycle of poverty, there's black on black crime. Like we all point to like the, the outcome, but not the cause or the root. And tell us, tell our viewership or listenership a little bit about the root and what inspired you to focus on that. Yeah, so the black tax is the financial cost of discrimination against black people that's driven by conscious and unconscious bias, either from individuals or organizations or institutions. So um, there was a couple things that that happened. One was, you know, you know, every six or eight months, a a study comes out, an article is written about a study about discrimination in some market that's important, right, to, to, uh, to black people, I always felt like those things were taxes, right? Even I was read those things and I was busy flying around the world doing all the stuff, I felt like, you know, at some point I'll come back and take a look at that. Um, you know, when I was in, engaged in, in personal financial management and really trying to help people transform their, their personal P&L and balance sheet, right, improve their financial health, I also wanted to advocate for them to use their resources to do business with black enterprise, right? Because that created jobs, it put capital in place and, and it helped to, to create wealth, right? But I also knew that you can't start with just saying you need to do business with black business because the numbers say that we don't, right? It's, it's generally well known that it's like 1.2 trillion is the collective income of kind of black people, but about 2% of that is spent on black enterprise. So despite the rhetoric, we're not actually spending our resources, right, on, on, our, on our business. And there's lots of biases associated with it, right? People are worried about quality. They're worried about consistency. They're worried about a lot of different things. They may approach it as a charity. I'll help you out. Mm-hmm. Or as a cost. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'll take the L for my people kind of thing, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, um, if, if you think about it as a cost, yeah. then let me show you what the real cost actually is, right? So then let's go look at what is the financial cost of this level of discrimination that's happening now, presently has happened in the past. And if you juxtapose what's happening now, right, with what you perceive, then you might say, well, how do I address this issue and how do I affect change? Mm-hmm. And, and the way you do that is, is by commercializing black enterprise through this economic framework that I call PhD, purchase, hire, and deposit in ways that create jobs, create and expand business and provide capital in, in the black community. So it was like, what was, what's the most effective way to get people to move in a particular direction? And new thought follow new actions follows new thinking and the problem is people come out and they say you should do this this and this but they never address the fact that there needs to be a paradigm shift for people to actually do those things we would want them to do and a book was written to facilitate that that paradigm shift yeah and and you know 
why is this important to branding is because in my mind, you know, without getting into the, the exposure that, that black businesses suffered during this pandemic with PPP and how many of them, I think uh, uh, 60% of them or even more will not reopen because they frankly weren't structured with payroll. You know, they, they, uh, they, you know, they were paying under the table. They didn't have the tax forms. You know, they, they were sole proprietorships and PPP was kind of set up like you've got to be, you've got to have people on W-2s and not 1099s. And, and so the very, very small, most vulnerable businesses like did not benefit from that. Um, that's one thing. The branding side of things is that you, that you touched upon is that people expect uh, to get hooked up or they, you know, as a minority business ourselves, uh, we find ourselves feeling like we've got to always overperform yep. um, because we feel like we're not being judged uh, by the same metrics. Whereas like I tell my team, like we can't be late. We got to deliver more than expected. We've got to be excellent. Um, and, and so that all is part of this tax, you know, uh, that, 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 that we feel. And, 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 uh, and Jorge has been on some of these conversations and Jorge, you can, you can the, whole, the whole thing is, yeah, you start kind of a lap behind and then you've got to do everything in your power to kind of catch up just to keep your head above water, just because of the connotation that comes sometimes with hiring that type of firm. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you've seen it and it is, uh, it becomes a thing that you have to get used to in your, you know, just your, you have to live it, breathe it. And it becomes your, your daily life. And you wonder, you know, how do you, how do you overcome that? How do you get that? What, you know, you talk about paradigm shift. Um, do you believe that kind of what we're seeing now is, is part of that paradigm shift that's occurring? Is that happening in part, uh, you know, is there other steps in, in, you know, in uh, on their way to occurring and, you know, what needs to happen to shepherd that forward? Yeah, what, <clears throat> what I think we're seeing now is a piercing of the veil. That's what I call it. Okay. Right. So you've got this this idea, this mantra that uh, it's all egalitarian, right? Everybody's got the same opportunity, and we're just dif- distinguished and differentiated by levels of hard work, stick-to-itiveness, and and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we've seen, you you had a bunch of things layered at the same time. One. You're dealing with the, the trauma of a global pandemic. You're dealing with people being, you know, at home and having more capacity to watch and observe and see things that are put on, you know, media. You're dealing with the fact that you had these grotesque executions of Black people in succession in a short period of time. And the automatic association is that Black people who experienced that trauma somehow deserved it, right? And as you start going to justify it, you start to see that there's there's no justification. You watch the whole thing, but you that smile. is but that is the first instinct people have is like, well, what was he doing? Exactly. Or where was exactly. he? He could have been reaching. Like we immediately, we mean, I'm Gen Pop is immediately right. goes to, uh, well, what was it, why was it rash? You know, why why was it justified? Even if they don't see anything, even if it's on video, uh, you have people going there first. Yeah. So you, you, what you have is, is the presumption of guilt. Now, that sounds like a very qualitative conversation, right? You can say, no, no, Sean, that's, you, you're just being hyperbolic. Right. Uh, what, what I do is I say, no, no, no. You, you have research that's been done by like Penn State and UC Berkeley, but they did four separate different studies. And they found that in America, you have an association between black people and apes. It's called a black ape association. And an ape is a, a non-human entity. Right. And what that results in is when a black person is experiencing violence associated with some wrongdoing, which doesn't have to be real. There's just an association with there is an automatic um, justification for the level of violence that 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 person feels. Right. And then you also have to. And by the way, that's something that that's unique to black people. That's not a non-white type of type of issue. Right. Then you also have the, the issue of confirmation of the bias, which is the expectation is that, you know, they were creating a problem, we creating a problem doing something, and we're going to go find the issue to confirm what we believed in, in the first place, multiplied by millions, tens and tens of millions of, of people, which is, which is problematic, right? So the, the, the fact of the matter is, as, as horrible as that sounds and seems, it's a reality. 
right? There isn't egalitarianism. The reaction isn't going to be the same if it was a, a non-black you know, person. And that, that brings me to this issue of anti-black bias levels, right? So the whole book, I start off with an examination of what are the levels of conscious and unconscious levels for anti-black bias, right, in America. And, and what is research saying that those levels are? And, and you start to realize when you look at, you know, Chicago and Stanford and Michigan Associated Press and, you know, other folks, when they did this study back in 2012, they found that conscious levels, people know exactly what they're doing, right, was about 51%. That's one in every other, that's every other American has anti-black bias <laughs> Amazing. levels, Amazing. right? That, that's hard to imagine. And unconscious levels, it was 56%. So it's almost six in 10 right, on, on a subconscious. And that was just that, that one, you know, study that was a national study on the whole electorate, right? So it was a non-trivial piece of work. The issue now becomes, how does that manifest itself in, in discriminatory behavior, from my perspective, that has a financial impact? Right. And then once you establish that, I now to, what you... No, to bring something up with that same point that we saw, I saw recently on social media, um, Gabriella Union ended up posting a thing that I saw about um, a story about a uh, an interracial couple yes. that they, there was um, they had their their house uh, evaluated, right? And the, it was appraised, and it came back at a number that was lower, although that they had you know much better curb appeal, bigger square footage, you know all the different features that that you'd expect to have in that situation, and. Um, they had it reevaluated, but they had only the husband show up. They took every picture of any black family member down. Yeah. They removed any, you know, all of the the black heroes that they had, you know, up on the walls for in their son's room. Had it reevaluated, and it came back, you know, a hundred sixty thousand dollars more. That put them above all the neighboring homes in the area. And it's just like when you when you think about that, and then that happening nationwide and consistently, it's kind of, you know. And happening now, I think. Well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, yeah. like, like it's a, it's still a thing. I, I actually sent that to to Sean this morning on yeah. via text. Um, is exactly what something that I wanted to bring up because it's like we're not talking about 1950s. This is like <laughs> right. This is like right. 2020. Yeah. <laughs> so this this is all what I call the current black tax, right? I, I go back in the how did we get here type of situation, but. So you, you're seeing an example, right, of, of the market's reaction to blackness associated with that home. Now, it's one family. Mm -hmm. So people will say that is not representative of America. That's not represent because it's anecdotal, right? right? Which is why I'm always in the data because the data is isolating for racialized effect, right? right. Not outliers for, for the, the, um, the naysayers, right? So they've done studies that say that if you're black and, and you're going through this home buying process, you're going to be shown 20% less houses. You're going to be told about 20% less houses, mm -hmm. right? If your name indicates that, that you're black, you're going to be treated as if your credit score is 71 points lower, right? Think about the different Dracronian difference, right. 71 points. Interest right? rates, right? You know, if your credit score is 660, and you're black, you're three times likely to be paying an outsized interest rate, 1.5% or higher, than if your credit score is the same and you're white, mm. right? And then um, the appreciation on the home tends to be about 18% less on the long term. So when you start to add these things up, right, you're, you're you know, the, you're talking the incremental in the, and you also pay higher fees. The incremental on the fees over a 30 year mortgage could be 13 grand. The incremental on the interest rate could be $144,000. What you lose on the appraisal could be $190,000. Not on the appraisal, on the appreciation, right. the equity appreciation could be $190,000. Yeah. Now this report is saying that your appraisal is going to be lower, which means the floor, the current value of the house is, is actually lower, right? manifestation than it should be. And I also just published research that says on average, blacks are paying higher taxes on their real estate, given the same amount. So in every possible way for you to be experiencing a draconian financial cost on the absolute most important investment that, that typically any American the has. The biggest purchase you ever make, yeah. 
that adds up right to 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 over almost three hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a, a course of a of a mortgage and those those are resources now that you're unable to pass on as part of your legacy right and it perpetuates this thing and all of it is irrational and unjustified all of it right there's a significant economic cost and that's what we need to get people dealing with and understanding this isn't about liking or not liking or whatever it is that you want to believe right. at the end of the day this is landing a financial impact and we talked about entrepreneurship Entrepreneurs start off raising with their own money and then money from friends and family, right? Mm -hmm. That goes in first. And a lot of that can come out of equity in a home, you know, or borrowing from a retirement plan and so on and so forth. But your biggest asset that we have is our home, 64 So this is, this is the residual effect because if, yep. you're, if your circle is black and brown people, they don't have the extra income to Precisely. invest in your business. So now you have less access to capital in the first step of, of, of launching a company, your resources are, are already behind the eight ball. You're, you're, yep. you know, you're at, you're at a deficit and you haven't even yep. started. Yeah. So if you, if you um, talk about disposable income on average for a black family, it's $200 a month, a year um, period. <laughs> Two hundred. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. On average. Yeah. yeah. So even if you link up with a bunch of people, yeah. Unless you're in a stratosphere where people have significant resources, right. it's very hard to accumulate based on that, right? right. And and white Americans have you know um, a hundred times more available capital. A hundred today, by the way, yeah. more right. available capital. Right. So what uh, in the in the in the interest of allyship and and does your book tackle what can be done? So you've raised awareness. So yeah. people, people can buy this book and, and, and say, okay, when I look at a black business or when I look at programs that are designed, like I, I was afforded an opportunity to attend uh, an executive program at Tuck on, on several occasions through um, the minority council here in New England. Uh, greatly, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of my mentors, Dr. Fred McKinney, he, you know, he, you know, I'm eternally grateful to him for that opportunity, but people can look at those programs and say like, those are set asides or those aren't fair because I can't attend, but we've got to look at it in the context that, that, um, that there is this reality that it's not a level playing field. So I look at those programs as a, uh, an attempt at leveling the playing field, at, at least giving someone like me who may not have been afforded, uh, the, the business courses or the business capital an opportunity to learn. So I looked at it as an example of, of something that can be done. What are some other things that you think can be done? Of course, supporting black businesses and brown businesses. I think, I think there's a, there's a stigma that if you support them, that you're somehow anti-white business. And that's not the case. It's like you can, you can be uh, pro-American, but supporting black businesses, you know, that, 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 it, that it's, there isn't this, uh, mutual exclusivity. Can you speak up on, on what can the average person do? Because I think that we're at a tipping point where people, I mean, I'm seeing Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, marches in, in, in Southbury, you know, places that we've never seen them before. I think there is a segment of our population that is aware of the disparity now. Maybe it was due to George Floyd or, 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 or this, this most recent uh, Jake, uh, uh, Jacobs um, case. Uh, what what are some things that can be done? Um, so um, this is an enormous uh, question, right? Yeah. That we would, we would need like several episodes to tackle. Yeah. So what I've talked about first is the framework or the approach that we should take, right? Like when people broke away from England and they came here and then they wanted to create their own country, they created a framework, yeah. the rules by which we're going to operate. And they call that framework a constitution, right? You have to have a governing framework of, that says, this is how we're going to value the efficacy of what we're doing. So the framework that I talk about is this PhD, which is about how you allocate your capital and your resources to drive businesses and job creation and provide capital within the black community, right, in, in particular. So if you're an individual, that's just about how we choose to spend our money. Um, and when you have a decision to make about, you know, what realtor you're going to use when you're buying a home right? Because there are fees associated with what insurance broker you're going to use, what attorney you're going to use, what, um, uh, you know, uh, 
construction partner you're going to use, right? Uh, when you're upgrading your kitchen or your bath, or all these kinds of different things, right? Uh, those are all decision points that we can make. Great paying jobs. Where are you going to buy your car from? You know, all, all those things. You know, who are you going to use uh, in in you know? Uh, web development, advertising, social media marketing, you, you know what I mean? Like these are jobs that will never leave. They'll never be outsourced. They're always going to be here. They're great paying jobs. And there, there are tons of them. You can direct your resources to, to those ends, right? The idea is to oversubscribe those people so that they have to hire, right? Then, of course, we have to complement them with financing. They have to have access to working capital. And they're also going to need access to acquisition capital in case they want to be able to buy into to larger um, enterprises but you got to have a standing demand for their for their services and we don't need anybody's permission to do that nobody needs anybody's permission to do that and anyone in america can do that and it, and it creates jobs and it's a terrific thing if you're a corporation that's all about your supply chain mm -hmm. you know corporate supply chains across uh the country utilize less than two percent of their spend is with black enterprise they can create tens of thousands of jobs just by directing their their spend towards you know black businesses who go out and hire right and affect entire you know communities. Um, if you're thinking about how do you leverage your balance sheet, you see you know Netflix is saying, look, we're going to allocate you know I think it's two percent of their kind of cash on hand. We're going to put it in in uh, you know black banks and or institutions, CDFIs, um, you, you know um, uh, what's the credit unions, right? For example, that are providing liquidity right in in, in these communities, um, and others can do that. I think there's two trillion dollars right sitting in people's balance sheets across various kind of corporations so that can have a huge you know stimulative impact are are, are black people probably represented in your payroll mm -hmm. at, at all levels most high performing high growth high paying jobs participation rate is is two percent or less right tremendous you know improvement that you that you can have so it's all about to what extent do you apply this framework now we can talk about which are the best paths within that that can have the biggest multiplier effect. So when I see people, you know, marching and protesting, which is wonderful, phenomenal, powerful, they're bringing awareness to things, but they can also utilize, you know, PhD. You got 75,000 people marching. I'm seeing $3 billion worth of spend, right? right? I, I'm seeing the multiplier effect in the jobs that can be created by how folks direct those resources, right? Because you, you pretty much have a pretty significant, it's almost as if there's an embargo against black enterprise, right? So it has a negative effect in terms of job creation and, and business development, and let's use um, the markets to, to change that, right? We do it with our own demand, and others can can join, best form of solidarity is economic solidarity, do business with yeah. black business that has a multiple effect and a ripple effect throughout the community. Do you feel that's the, the great equalizer, is finance, economic development? Yeah, I think economics, um, what, it, what it does is it shows you where all the pain points are. So now if you say, okay, Sean, I got it. I'm in there 100%. I'm going to allocate $10 billion towards X. Very quickly, you're going to run into the issue of what I call the slack and the gap. Mm -hmm. So the slack is those who are underutilized but ready for prime time today. You can quickly tighten that up right, and do tremendous business. Then you're going to run into the gap, which is, wow, we need more of these folks who are well positioned. Now that speaks to an area of investment, right? Now you put more into that program that you were talking about, right? You, you 10, 100x that, and you put more entrepreneurs into that program so you can allocate more working capital and acquisition capital to them. You're upskilling them from that perspective, and then you're putting the resources in, in place. And then they're going to be like, oh my goodness, I need to go find more people, okay? Where are we going to get those people from? Again, let's hire from within our community. You're going to say, well, I don't have enough skills in my community. Let's invest in upskilling those folks as opposed to just purely importing folks. Right. Then you're like, well, I need a longer-term strategy. Okay, let's invest in HBCUs, right, and schools that are doing a great job of, of pulling people from low-income communities and giving them terrific skill sets and putting them out in, in, into the workplace. As you start to have the demand, you start to see where the choke points are and that's where the capital flows, right? So you start to see the continuous process of where it identifies the choke points and the points where we need to, to invest and you have a full continuum. Most people just see one portion of it and they say, let's invest here, but then they want to see the fullness of the, of the program where it's multifactorial. Right, uh, what was it like speaking uh, for Google and what was, what did they actually hire you for? Because I'm trying to get 
a sense of, of uh, beyond your book, um, what is this ministry? Who's hiring you? Are corporations hiring you? Um, tell me what that was like, because I've seen, I've seen you do more and more speaking engagements. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. You know, I've, I've spoken at Google twice, right? I've spoken at Amazon, you know, a couple times, and Viacom. I've spoken at the United Nations um, and, and a bunch of different places. So normally, it's, it's you're just, you know, I'm being contracted to, for a talk because no one's taken this position of just saying, how do you quantify this stuff, right? right? And let's do it based on research and data and make it less emotional. It emotes, but it's not emotional, right? It's speaking in the language of business that everybody talks about all day long and you get away from less agree to disagree. If there's no numbers involved and it's qualitative, we can agree to disagree. If there's numbers involved, then we gotta decide what position are we gonna, gonna take. So primarily it's been to have talks to kind of educate uh, employees at, at all levels and now you've got a, a, a movement where people are like, well, you know, we're trying to put some of these things in place. Can you help us do so? And then that can evolve into like a, con, you know, a consulting relationship mm -hmm. uh, where I'm like, what's the best way to implement PhD? Right. Because one of the things that I try to make clear at, at all of these different places is that, you know, uh, minority and diversity and all that kind of stuff doesn't need, mean black, right? You have to be specific when you say use those terms, you're talking basically about non-white males. And that's 90% of the population on planet Earth. You can't have a generalized solution to address specific problems. Well, in so, Connecticut, uh, white women are, are factored in as minorities. So it, it's yeah, even more dangerous. Right. So exactly, right? Which is, you're just rerouting resources back to yourself. That's just okay. a conversation between gender of how they should allocate Right. roughly 70 trillion dollars you know what i mean and, right. and that needs to be dealt with and, and done right. with in an appropriate way it has no impact on, on black people whatsoever right. um and any issue has to be like if if you want to address these issues and and people do mm -hmm. then you need to be specific right it, the, the world is not egalitarian the levels of biases are not the same across all groups mm -hmm. the, the the most highest level of bias is anti-black bias and it's the most resistant to change it falls the slowest over time right? And that affects you economically. So you have to have programs that are very specific to that group. The same way you need to have programs that are very specific to, to um, people of Asian ancestry and descent, which by the way, is 40% of people on planet earth. You know what I mean? Like this is some, you know, consolidated group that people just made up. And the same thing for our Latino brothers and sisters, you, you have to have well-defined programs for, the, for those particular groups the groups have different per capita incomes they have different per capita wealth they have different business infrastructure right and 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 black people are the worst of all of those metrics right so you need a unique uh, solution set to that right that goes from affordable loans to grants to acquisition capital to a whole host of things yeah absolutely and i want to move on to ctr <laughs> tell us a little bit about this next book i i like what i'm hearing because for our entrepreneurs out there You've written a book. You're passionate about it. It's a very important topic. I look at it as a ministry, but you've, you've been able to monetize it into speaking engagements. And I like how you've branded these things like PhD and CPR. and did a very good job of that, creating systems uh, and, and coming up with solutions. What's different about CPR? What's the focus of that book? So they're, they're complementary. It's written in a different voice, right? Um, you know, the, the black tax is, is really just the kind of, it's very intense and, and potent, but it's just just the facts type of situation. Whereas uh, CPR for the Souls is more like you're having a conversation with me. And it's fundamentally designed to help us better manage our economic resources. Why is that? Because, because of the history, right, of, of the last 400 years and 150 years plus in, in general, people haven't had the, the critical mass of knowledge right, from passing capital and resources from family to family. So we're always trying to figure, do our best to figure things out, right? Um, so I just wanted to, to write something. I, I felt like a lot of the information out there solve issues of allocation, right? Which is, you know, I got 750 to a million dollars. How do I allocate this across various classes to create intergenerational wealth? That's by and large not our issue. Our issue is one of allocation, which is how do I get there in the first place? given where I am right now. So I wanted to write something for those folks, right? That focused on this thing that I call the soul. Stewardship, ownership, and legacy, 
right? Stewardship is how do I manage my limited resources to their highest and best use to maximize cash flow? No positive cash flow, no conversation. We're done, right? It's a necessary requirement. The other piece of it is now ownership. How do I put myself in a position where I'm the only person who has claims on my assets, right? Which means I got to understand what my levels of debt are, put together a plan to over time get myself out of that situation and then try to stay out of that situation within the context of an environment that's hyper consumptive and does so based on debt, right? right so right, right. This, the other piece of it was legacy, which is three parts. One, how do I, according to Proverbs, leave an inheritance for my children's children, right? That's no joke. When you start thinking about that level, it's hard enough to, to make sure you are okay. Yeah, we're not, to, we're not inheriting, you know, uh, homes or, or plots of land or businesses exactly. or any of these things that now, you know, the term of, hey, you were born on third base. That's what that means. It's like you were born into an existing family business. You were born into the home you, you, you live in is now mortgage free. And so right. you can work and invest in, in other places. It's like our communities of black and brown communities don't have that luxury oftentimes of things being handed down to them. I think, I think this generation is growing up with some <laughs> of that, but it's taken uh, hundreds of years to get there. Yeah. So let me be uh, precise, right? Yes. If you're a black, <clears throat> um, you're five times less likely to get an inheritance. And if you get an inheritance, it's likely to be one tenth of what your white peer gets. Mm -hmm. And that which your white peer gets, 91% goes to wealth in increase. For black people, it's 20%. Wow. So on every metric, that, that's why I want people to understand, like yeah. beyond the qualitative ways of talking about things, we have less. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's orders of magnitude here, right, of, of, of difference. And all those things are actually necessary. Educational outcomes are proportional to wealth. Yes. Health well, outcomes are proportional to wealth. Business, um, uh, your ability to actually do well, right, as, as, uh, as an entrepreneur, is proportional to the amount of wealth that, that you have because it's a learning process. Not, people don't always win. They, they, they try six, seven, eight times mm -hmm. before they kind of figure it out. If, if you have very limited resources, you got one shot, right, to get it right across all, all those things. So that lack of economic resources, the, the, the dearth of it, you know, has a huge impact on all those outcomes, health, educational, entrepreneurial. A lot of that's already set before you even start putting in your hard work. Right. And we're That's not even, gonna, yeah, we're not even going to go into the check cashing places and predatory lending. And exactly. All these pitfalls that are all around you to even sabotage you further. 100%. Capitalize off of that exact yep. situation. Now, I, I do want Jorge to chime in a bit because you've done some real strategic <laughs> things with your website um, that from an entrepreneurial standpoint, um, you've, you've actually leveraged the web tools uh, you've built systems so that you're not relying on like selling them uh, strictly on Amazon. And you've made some strategic decisions that I want Jorge to dive into before we wrap up, because I think they're important for our listeners that are either writing books or want to launch their own brand. You've really done something special with how you're leveraging the website. And I want to, I want to definitely have Jorge address some of that. Sure. And I, like you said, a lot of it is taking that independence and that, uh, you know, that, uh, that ability to create into your own hands, right? Um, you take Amazon, which takes a massive cut of whatever it is that you're putting on there. And you say, well, how can I, how can I spin that for myself? So it's been great to collaborate and be able to say, Hey, how can we create a solution that puts that sales power into your hands instead? So kind of bypassing that need to give, you know, that massive platform that's already, you know, one of the richest in the entire world instead of put that directly uh, into you and, and be able to reward customers for ordering in higher volume, being able to now expanding from not just uh, physical products and the digital ebook itself, but now into the, into the courses is, you know, it, it's amazing that there's so much content there that's so valuable. And I think a lot of it just from a, you know, just talking about data in general is hearing so much about what the, the, what the, 
and when you hear the numbers of the of everything that's going on, it kind of is that's the enlightening part that always kind of blows my mind. You know, as a developer, we always say that users lie, but logs don't, because at the end of the day, that the computer is just kind of uh, capturing that data, and you're able to to make actions on it. So, hearing the the data behind all of this and how we can translate that to enlighten people further uh, oh. through the web and make that international, give you a voice for your own platform. Uh, for uh, in the form of blog posts, in the in the for in the form of different content and courses, um, ebooks, physical books. Uh, it's been great to be able to see that evolve over time too. Paywalls and quid pro quo, and 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 just I like to say people uh, that come to the site, you drive the traffic there. They've they've self-identified themselves as as being interested in in the subject matter, and and I just think it's a great example. Uh, Sean, did you have anything you want to share about the website itself and how you've kind of structured? Because you've got multiple brands going on, multiple books. Um, what's been, from an entrepreneur standpoint, have, do you, have you sketched this out uh, and created like an org chart? Like, how have you, because you, you, you're, you're a friend to, the, to PD, you support us. Uh, we love working with you. But when you come to us, you come ready. You come prepared. You're not saying, hey, guys, uh, you know, what should I do here? Oftentimes, I feel like we execute for you, but you've, you've spent, clearly spent a lot of time researching. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think of the user experience from, from an owner standpoint? Yeah, so um, let me kind of give you, like, how, how the, the continuum starts to go, right? So uh, one of the things that – so I studied the space before I went into it. Mm-hmm. I was never interested in writing a book. People have been telling me that for 20 years, right? Like, I don't have a PhD. People call me Dr. Rochester all the time. People call me Dr. Rochester since I was an undergrad. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? So I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in doing that. Mm-hmm. So, but when, when I found that it was necessary, because I wanted to provide this information to people so they had the, the same fact pattern, so that they could understand and empathize and then allocate their resources to what they now wanted to see, I, I was going to uh, publish a book, so and I, and I studied the space before I went into it. Like people don't, people don't know. I understand the space extremely well, right? And then I'm a cash flow optimization expert. Like that's what I do. I'm very passionate about that. I've done that at corporations, right? I've done it, you know, for ourselves and our family and for a host of all kinds of different clients, right? I know how to do it on any level. Any position that I'm going to take out is going to be the highest cash flow, highest margin position that's possible within that space. To be able to do that, you really, really have to study it and to take a look at what the options and alternatives are for you and the pros and cons with, with each. And when I went through that process, you know, to me, it made you know, more sense to, that I was going to become not just a self-publisher, but to become the publisher, right? So we have our own captive uh, publishing business, right? And it's for the work that, that, that I produce. Now, that means you've got to put it all together. You don't just got to go to someone and, and they do it for you. You've got to do it. But it allowed me to actually execute on this belief system of a PhD. So I was able to go and work with all of these great and amazing folks that I would never would have had the chance to do if I went with like a firm that's 98% not black, right? Like if you're lucky, if you could find one black person that's, that's engaged. I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to live it. The other piece of it was I also had to figure out not only how to make a great product, and my goals were very high. I wanted this to be as good or better than anything that you could find from top places, period, end of story. My goal is always to be the best in the world at, at what I do. Now you, now to complement creating a great product. That's the alpha man in you, by the way. Then you, you better believe it, right? <laughs> <laughs> you better believe it, right? You know, um, not to complement making a, a great product, which I listen, I don't mean to trivialize it. I cannot tell you how difficult it is. I have a lot of respect for people who've written books and all that kind of stuff. It is non-trivial, right? So I don't want to brush it over. But after you go through that process, you got to think about how now are you going to distribute it? What face to the world are, are you going to have, right? And there's a big difference between a physical book and a digital book, right? And how are you going to create this web presence? And what is the best way to go about doing it? And who's a great partner to have? Because, you know, I'm really good at figuring things out from the ground up, but I'm bandwidth limited. And it's great to leverage 
uh, people who know what they're doing, who are experienced, who have a practice eye, right? To work with the experts. So who you partner with matters hugely, right? And you know, like I came to you guys, we sat down, we mapped things out. I told you about all the stuff, right? You gave all the feedback. Our relationship has been been phenomenal and excellent. And you can see it from the work product, right? You, you guys designed the cover. People love the cover, right? The chess pieces, right? The implication and the positioning, like people see it. Mm. People love, um, so I had to figure out how do we sell paperback books? We're going to do it on ourselves. And how are we going to sell digital books? And I have you guys to partner with, with what's the best way to go about doing that. Right. How are we going to have a crisp, clean, consistent design? Mm -hmm. Right? You got to have folks that you can work with who can help you do that and think about how that mosaic kind of fits together within kind of your, your belief system. And then you talked about with COVID, right? So COVID happens. The whole world changes. I was all over the place. I mean, I started the year on fire. I was everywhere, right? Which was terrific. Yeah. But then that all came to a close and I had to very quickly pivot. Right. So, you know, I came back to, to you guys and I was like, okay, let's 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 refresh this thing, right? Crisp, clean. Uh, you know, when people land, I want them to be able to see what's there and they can quickly do business commerce. They don't gotta chase around or anything like that. I had another website, right? Which we're in the process of integrating into this website. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So we can have the courses right in there. Um, to, to be able to talk with someone, you can say, listen, I wanna have a page where people can see in one spot, you know, um, talks, articles, videos, conferences, whatever, so that they can make a decision on the spot. If you go to that page, on www.blacktax.com, the speaker page that was just, you know, created. It's crisp, it's tight. You could just forward that to people and it's like, it's, it's wow. Um, so that, you know, it was easier to do, you know, more sales to the, to the website. It was easier to book more talks with all that stuff's virtual now, right? So I'm just doing it um, with the way everybody else is doing it, right? Shirt, tie, jacket, um, you know, and maybe shorts, <laughs> right? Exactly. You never know, right, but, but, uh, on there. Um, and then also, so <laughs> long story short, you have to know what your goals and your objectives are and what the pros and the cons are. There are costs to what I'm doing. I am willing to invest in it, mm -hmm. right? I have a belief system about who I want to do business with and how that helps families. And I want to be able to execute on that belief system, mm -hmm. right? You have to have great people who can help you bring your vision to fruition, right? You know, kind of across the board and have a very powerful and consistent theme. And then the way I thought about it is doing it in phases, right? That's a key. Uh, crisp, clean, and honestly affordable because there's endless things to spend money on, but you really got to focus on how you invest in things that drive revenue and profit so that you can continue to do business, right? right? With the folks that, that, that you were doing business with. And, and, and we've been laying those things out. And then when you have a, a, a partner and a good relationship, it gets beyond just the, the scope of work. People have a stronger sense of, of what you're doing. Right, absolutely. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's easier absolutely. to be like, oh, okay, the best thing in the world, let me just say this, is when you can work with someone who can help you fill in the blanks. You can't, even though you have great aspirations and goals and you're directly correct, you don't know everything that's missing, right? Right. And sometimes you don't know what else you should be doing. It's like so much more is kind of brought to the table to help you avoid those pitfalls, not just to execute the, the work. And that's what I like uh, about the relationship. So it's a bunch of things, you know, we, we live the principles, mm -hmm. Right, um, we got a high quality product. People are people love the blog, even though I've I'm amazed at how many folks are going to it, even though I'm not really <laughs> advertising, I'm just sharing my thoughts. And they're like, Is it hard to maintain such an awesome blog? <laughs> I'm like, I don't think it's that hard, but you really do need a great partner, right? Yeah, to, yeah. to help you set it up and bring it together. Well, you, we appreciate you, know? you. We, we appreciate the partnership, and 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 I feel like. We're only just getting started. There's so much more and, and there's so much work to do and, and being able to use our powers for good uh, with this kind of a relationship is really rewarding for us. And I know Jorge speaks highly of every single conversation he has with you. And he said, good luck keeping, 
keeping Sean to a half hour. He warned me. Um, and I, and so, but you know, I think we're, we're definitely going to have it though. Always yeah. cool way enlightened every single time. Absolutely. Day, so. I, I, that's why, that's why I'm not stressing the time. I think, I think this is a great episode, lots of great content from many different perspectives. Uh, you mentioned real quickly the website, but can you share it again for those that may want to buy your book or may want to hire you to come speak or speak virtually to their company? Because if Google and Amazon are hiring you, uh, you know, these, these mid-level small businesses that have, you know, 50 to 100 employees, they could certainly help and, be, uh, and, and uh, benefit greatly from your content. And, and there are plenty of people that now uh, want to be allies but don't know the best way to do it. Yeah. Um, so how can people track you down, find you, buy your book, share some of that with us, and, uh, and, and so our readers or our listeners will know. Yeah, so folks can email me at blacktext with an ed. Uh, at gmail.com. Um, you can, you know, buy the books um, and soon to be the courses um, at www.blacktaxed.com uh, as well. Um, so, you know, we do talks, uh, there's consulting. Um, and in some cases, we help raise capital for businesses that need it, right? Um, and, as, and, and even finding resources because you get to a point where people say, man, I, I really get it and I see what you're talking about. I just don't know how to do it, mm-hmm. right? Where do I find these people? How do I get these resources? How do I act on what I now believe, right? So we work with folks and we consult with them and partner with them on, on how they can execute that. Excellent. Well, Sean, Mr. Sh- or Dr. <laughs> Sean Rochester, because <laughs> you do have a PhD. It just stands for something different. But listen. That's right. Uh, thank you for your time and your insights and this mission that you're on. And, and we're so grateful to be a partner with you on that mission and to help you. Uh, thank you, Jorge, for joining us um, and, and, and your, and, you know, your ongoing work with, with Sean on our team. And, and uh, you know, it's just, it's just a wonderful thing. And I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, we'd like to thank everyone out there for, uh, for joining us. Uh, this has been a great episode uh, of Mission Control. And until next time, this is Ramon Peralta with Peralta Design and We Launch Brands. Thank you for taking this journey with us. To learn more about Peralta Design and our work, go to www.peraltadesign.com and subscribe to keep up with the crew.